Welcome to the podcast Rise and Play. I am Sophie Vaux, your podcast host. I bring together leaders, entrepreneurs, fund makers, investors, and educators who are here to make a change in the industry. For a brighter and healthier future of the games we will make, and how we will make them. We're here to start a conversation because listening and asking the hard questions is sometimes enough to inspire change in us, to take the leap to. Let's begin. Today, I am super happy to have Audrey Le Prince with me. Audrey is the co-founder of an indie studio, The Game Bakers, behind games like Heaven or Fury. She started in the industry as game designer and producer for Ubisoft and Quantic Dream on AAA games. Audrey is advocating for diversity in the games industry. She co-founded Wings in 2019, an international mini-phone only focusing on funding games by women and marginalized genders, developers, and founded Women in Game France. She's also on the board of the French Video Game Trade Association. Hi, Audrey. Very pleased to have you. How are you today? Hello, Sophie. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I have many questions because you are involved in many things. So let's start first with uh, what is at the core of a passion as well, games. So my first question is, uh, when did you start your own studio? Because, you know, you have a very big experience as well in big studios such as Ubisoft and Cantic Dream. And I'm really curious what led you to do your own thing, how it started and what led you to where you are today. Yeah, it's true that uh, there's not so many people who start in AAA in big studios and then go uh, crazy indie on the other side. It's either, it seems like it's either you choose and you start indie and you stay indie forever or either you stay in AAA forever. But uh, yeah, so I started uh, in the AAA on big uh, console games, the Tom Clancy games, on the Quantic Dream first game, uh, No Matter How, uh, 22 years ago now. And, oh, wow. Uh, And, I, and it was fantastic. I learned so much. Um, I was uh, seven years in China with Ubisoft too. It was a fantastic experience. And uh, after, you know, working on big AAA games for over four or five years with uh, teams that were very big at the time. I know now they are bigger, but at the time it was like 400 people across like, you know, three continents and uh, 12 nationalities. And I was really looking to do something smaller and simpler and faster and to have more control. And so that's why I, I left Ubisoft and started my own studio with uh, Emric Toa, the Game Bakers. So it was 11 years ago now. I think we celebrated 11 years. Uh, we didn't celebrate, but we're going to celebrate mm -hmm. this summer uh, of Game Bakers. Wow, congratulations. 11 years. That's an achievement for sure. And yeah, unfortunately... <laughs> Hard to celebrate things uh, given the circumstances, but it's amazing. And follow-up question, then more as you share as well your motivation in uh, your studio. What uh, are the things like looking back, sort of retrospective of your 10 years as well uh, with your own company? What are the things that really you were really happy with no regrets that you could have with your own studio? And the other things maybe sometimes you miss or where appear to be challenges when you are on your own? Yes. There's one thing I am so happy and very proud of with Game Bakers. Several things, actually. Well, the list would be very long, but <laughs> I'll focus on two things. One is we managed to be self-funded from the beginning. Oh, wow. So we have never had any 
dependency or control or on any of our games. We have always managed to self-fund our games from the first mobile game squids to last year Haven. Uh, we have had complete independence and I'm very, very grateful for that. And I think it gave us also the strength to do things a bit differently and uh, probably also uh, kept us on our toes a lot. So I'm very happy about that. And um, because I often see in the studio and they start and they get published and it's great. It's a great experience and make a great game. And then most of the revenue goes back to the publisher. And then they're fighting again to find another publisher for their next game. And they keep continuing like that. They're kind of stuck because they never have enough money to be like completely independent. They always have to mm -hmm. look after another, another partner. So that's one thing I'm very happy is the independence we have crafted for ourselves. Um, it's not always easy because we only have one game. So we rely on, uh, you know, on the success of it. If we fail, we're going to be in big trouble and we're probably going to run after a publisher. But uh, for now, uh, it gives us a lot of uh, freedom. And for us, it's uh, very important. And the other thing I'm very proud of at Game Bakers is that we, we've never wanted to grow. We wanted to stay very, very small. And now we have 12 people. Uh, we all work from across the world. We've always done that across France, across, I'm in Sweden, someone's in Canada or everywhere. And we have a completely free schedule. People come to work and they can stop if they have to go for a tennis or whatever. And no one has ever left the company so far. They're all very happy. Uh, and we've just gone through, you know, the annual annual interview process and uh, talking with everyone. And uh, like, I'm very happy. And, and this is so, so great to see that this model of distributed work, free work across the world has worked for us and we shipped our games. And we were, were not so delayed and we were not less efficient because we were all working wherever we wanted in the world. So um, that makes me happy too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sounds like a great place Like for, uh, I think it's an achievement also to celebrate after uh, over a decade, keeping the same people that you have had. So it tells a lot, you know, like these days, you know, there are many options for people to work and they can walk out and decide to work uh, somewhere else. So um, it tells a lot about how much probably they would enjoy, you know, the work probably means much more after mm -hmm. 10 years. So it's amazing as well as this model of independent studio and fully independent and with people that have known each other for such a long time. It's great. Yeah, I think it, what's great is that we actually managed to make the games. Making a game, I mean, I don't know, but it's so hard. It's so hard. No wonder so many people spend so many years and burn out or stop or just quit the industry. It is such a hard process, but uh, we are very. I'm very grateful to be working with the team we have that makes it that we manage to make our games and they're more more or less good games. I think we can say that, that the players seem to enjoy them very much. So uh, it's uh, it's hard to be consistently making good games, but I think it's the key to keep the team happy. Actually, it's one of the keys. Yeah, and I've seen the games as well like and they are super unique super original I, I really love the style that's really i don't know there's also the french touch somewhere, somewhere it's hard to explain uh, of the video games but, but i love it like it's really unique positioning so it's nice that you also found the audience as well for the games you're making yes yeah and maybe coming back also to the origin of the first game you published yourself and self-funded i was curious how did that all work out so 
how are how did you make the financing at the beginning? What were the conscious choice you made to make it happen? Because like you described, some would immediately go for a publisher before they could even start development. So what were the risks you were willing to take to see if it would work out? Well, you know, we were, uh, Emmerich and I, we were console and PC, mostly console players, actually. But uh, we realized we couldn't start a studio and find uh, 3 million euros to make a big console game or PC game. And at the time in 2010, we thought that mobile was really the way to go because it seemed to us that we were so close to players uh, so connected, the App Store was uh, such a great resource at the time. It was like so many games have appearing and direct connection with your players and you could read the comments and do all of that. Things you couldn't do uh, on consoles. I don't know if anyone remember, but before it was such a closed world, right? So we decided to go for uh, mobile, uh, also because the production budget of a very good game on mobile was something that seemed within reach. So we didn't pay ourselves for a few uh, for a few years, Henrik and me. And then we also raised a lot of money to make the budget of our first game with the support also of the French uh, CNC uh, subventions that we get in France for the game creation. And this is how we met the budget of our first uh, mobile game. And this is how we, we started. We managed to hire two more people uh, and then we were good to go. <laughs> It's a great story of how you scale and uh, bootstrap first the studio and then scale the team and to be independent. It's uh, For me, I'm always impressed to see these days, especially independent studios, like really self-funded because, yeah, it's really hard, first of all. It costs money upfront. And then there's the whole marketing part, which we won't touch on today. But really, just uh, having the game presented to the right audience is also requires you know a lot of money. So it's amazing for for your case. Yeah, it's crazy. I think there's this industry really lacks a prototype funding. I mean, there are so many people who have brilliant ideas and can't find the resources to make them happen. And that's a, it's one of my big frustrations with Wings uh, in particular is that we only fund games who have a prototype. And I know there are so many people out there with great games that just can't find the money to make it happen, even to the prototype stage. Not everybody has the privilege to working in their parents' mm -hmm. garage uh, for a, a year to make a prototype, right? Uh, a lot of, yeah. uh, especially women, and uh, they have several lives to live in parallel also. Uh, maybe they have kids to take care of, or maybe, you know. So it's super, super discriminating, actually, that we don't have proper prototype funding for this industry. <laughs> so then it's a perfect transition to also talk more about wings, because you touched on it a bit as well. What was the motivation for you to start this fund? What were the problems you saw? And yeah, how did it start? When? With who? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny story how I started Wings because I first asked, I started Women in Games, Women in Games France. So Women in Games is the classic grassroots organization, you know, that advocates for equality in the game industry and more diversity in general. And is using all the grassroots techniques of, you know, networking, training, uh, encouraging women to help each other and uh, providing uh, all kinds of incubators and when we can and free training and also um, any, anything that's useful, basically, that we can manage to do with a team of volunteers. And we did that for a few years and it was great. And we did a lot of fantastic things like 
you know, public speaking training, putting forward so many women in the press, working with the industry itself to change the mentality. A lot of it was great. But then I was like, this is not enough. This is not enough. We keep, you know, spending time to get, what, 5,000 euros from, what, Ubisoft, Google, whoever, whoever great sponsors are, they're fantastic. But with those 5,000 euros, I'm going to be able to train 10 people. I mean, this is not scaling well. This is too much work on volunteers to no one is paid. No one is. So too much work. And I have to find something more efficient. I have to find mm-hmm. a direct way of more money to women. <laughs> and this is how I thought about wings. And I'm like, I'm going to go get the money and give it directly to the, to the women to make games. Just cut everything else. Just focus on that. This is how it started. And I was trying to make it work with women in games in France, talking to the BP, the French banks and stuff. And, and it didn't go very well. And at the same time, Peter, Peter from Landfall Studios here in Sweden was trying to do the same. And then we kept bumping into each other and like, it's not working. Right. <laughs> and then we decided to do it together. And then boom, it started. Got the first investment from uh, Landfall Games. And then Riot just uh, also granted us a million dollars to invest in different projects like a few weeks ago or a month ago now. So it's, it's going well now. But it was a funny uh, story. It's just a story of scaling up and efficiency, basically. <laughs> wow. But amazing start. And I have been following uh, Wings actually since I know it exists. And also I've seen recently the games that you have backed and super interesting portfolio. And if you could tell us more actually about the particular positioning of Wings, because it's not, I would say, a traditional fund. And it has also certain criteria certain for a certain audience and a certain stage. So if you could tell us more about it. Yeah, but Wings is very simple. It only funds games made by teams in which women or marginalized gender developers have key positions. So it doesn't have to be 100% women team or anything crazy. We just want the women or marginalized gender persons to be at some key position in the team. So uh, we have team with only one woman, and that's good. We have team with three people, and the woman is the, maybe the co-owner of the studio plus the art director or whatever. That's good also but they need to have a key position to really influence the game and also to benefit from the profit of the game and the success of the game. That's our our key requirement. And the other thing that makes us unique, I think we are the only funding body that I know, at least in the game industry, but maybe outside, that is only women who decides, only women and marginal gender person on our board. They, they are the ones who review the game with no pre-screening. They review all the games submitted as long as they comply with our diversity requirement. And then they all, they're all from around the world. There's eight of them right now. They are from America, Australia, Spain, Finland. Anyway, and they have all shipped successful games, indie games, PC console games, and they are still also working in industry. So they are also very connected, very aware with what's happening. So all of the women and persons of marginal gender who are out there, you can know that if you send us your game, it will be reviewed by people who have a lot in common with you. Yeah, that's great. And more on the background of what made Wings Wings, what were the problems you saw in the whole funding ecosystem to make Wings this way? Because you are touching on several points, like how do you review, how do you screen, how do you position yourself? Yeah. 
the biggest problem is going to be a succession of, of numbers, right? There's like half the world is women, mm-hmm. half the players are women, and now only 14% of them are developers. And so already, where are, why, where, where are they gone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then if you look at how many, how many people, there's not the exact statistics I would like to have, but then among the, the people who start companies, very, very rare are women. And among the projects that are funded, also very rarely, they are women-led projects. So it's like you, the percentage drops to like below 5%. So uh, if you think that 99 or 95% of the money goes to uh, the same profile of white men from privileged background most of the time, because also video game education is, is something that we can talk about. <laughs> but, uh, so you, you see how the whole system is skewed in the wrong direction. It's never going to work. So we have to rebalance the funding, st- starting to empower the people who are going to make the games. And this is why we started Wings, and this is why it's only women run. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's one of the first ways to address the the imbalance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the studio you onboarded, did you get more insights as well? What were the challenges they met? Were probably you you mentioned like some of them trying to get funding, like, but what's behind the statistics? What is the reality of? In these the marginalized groups or even women founders trying to go for fun, what's been their experience? Maybe yourself as well when you made your own studio. Yeah, well, we we have uh, we've heard a few stories, and one of the most emblematic stories that we all know, I guess, uh, is the Tanya Short from Kid Fox Game, who was working on um, mm-hmm. Boyfriend Dungeon. And she's already a, a successful, very well-connected developer. And she was trying to fund that game where you basically, it's a dungeon game where you take your weapons. For those of you who don't know, I'm sure you all know about this game, if you don't check it out. But And then she was like trying to get a publisher behind it. And she was pitching that game to mostly men who didn't get it at all. And she kept getting no's and no's and no's. And then she went to Kickstarter. And I think she had one of the fastest funded game on Kickstarter for a while. And, and of course, the community is raving about the game now. And so that's just that she was just not talking to the right person. They couldn't see the, the magic in her pitch. They couldn't get it because they had different things in their mind mm-hmm. and different culture and different yeah, tastes. And, and so this is just a very simple thing that... We are very different with different ideas and different tastes and different cultural perspective on what's fun and not fun and what we'd like to play. But we keep talking to the same kind of people. So obviously this is not going to go through. A lot of us are going to talk there, like hitting the wall. Yeah. Then having a bit more focus on you and your particular activities. And uh, so you are involved in uh, Wings, Women in Game France. You have also your own game studio personal life like also we have our multiple lives as women as you have mentioned i was really curious like yeah how do you manage the front of obvious activities how do you organize yourself your priorities yeah i I, um i had a a daughter the same year i started my studio 10 years ago oh wow (laughs) it was an interesting year (laughs) and so i have been and she's also a reason why i went Indie and left Ubisoft because I couldn't see myself. I was producer on AAA games, but I couldn't see myself working to 8.30 every day. Mm. Uh, no, I so it's not going to work. How am I going to take care of that little creature, right? 
Yeah. So um, we embraced it at Game Bakers. So uh, when I was not available, I was not available. Uh, of course, at first I worked a lot at night to catch up for my last, last time in the day. And it was very tiring. But eventually, uh, I think kids grow. It gets a bit easier. The school, those things, school and all the, the support you can find or preschool. And it gets a little bit easier. You get back some of your uh, free time and you can work again. Mm -hmm. But my priority is always going to be for my daughter. I'm always available for her important meetings rather than mine, uh, which is also sometimes quite difficult to accept that you're going to miss out on uh, mm -hmm. those big meetings that you think are important and that you think you're not going to participate in. So it's tough, but I think it's one of the strengths of being independent uh, and of owning your own future mm -hmm. and not having to always please others to, you know, to get a promotion or to get uh, your ideas through. And, and I'm very privileged in that sense to be at the same time a mother and, and an independent because I think it's very hard for a lot of mm -hmm. the women out there in the game industry who are in a different kind of setup. And so my routine has always been to work a lot. <laughs> so I love to work. I'm probably a worker. <laughs> I was like, can I say anything healthy there? Can I say anything clever? No. <laughs> I am a worker. How do you say? A worker alcoholic. Workaholic. Anyway, I, I love to I love to make uh, things happen. That's mm -hmm. my thing. I love to start projects, see them through. That's the thing. So that's what makes me happy. So I know it. So I, I would never be inactive. Inactive is not a status for me, except when I sleep. <laughs> I just uh, I just managed to yeah, yes to make it happen by trying to keep a very you know healthy lifestyle, still sleeping, still eating some good food, still going outside and doing some exercise, still spending time with the people I love. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have a magical recipe, unfortunately. It's a very personal road to find how you are the happiest in your work-life balance and organization of your daily routine. Yeah. But I would say, although it's not like you're about practical tools, but you mentioned actually important things that helped you organize your life and your priorities. And uh, it sounds to me like your priorities of life are clear. So you have clarity. You know, you mentioned also about your daughter, a very at the core, you know, of your priorities and uh, also the work that you like to work. And I, I encourage just more women to not feel the shame of saying I work is important in my life. And it has to be part of my life and it makes me happy, you know. So um, acknowledging and understanding what gives you energy and continuing, I think this is one of the great tools of managing your life. Where should I put my time, you know, in that gives me energy? And you're talking about a tip, but I actually do something that I have found very useful. And it sounds a little bit silly, but I do it every year. Every year I stop and I look at my past year and I write down the thing that made me the happiest that I remember from that year. And I, the, the, the thing that I found that made me, you know, the most fulfilled, the most energized, the happiest. And then I write the thing that I really dislike, the moments, the interactions, the thing that happened that really, really uh, disliked. And I, and I try not to do any more the things I dislike. I actually don't do it. Like I remember once I had a, a friendship that was not going well. I thought, the person was actually making me miserable, even though she was my friend. 
And I, you know, it's hard to realize that because you're like, she's a friend. Yeah. And, and then she kept, her name kept coming up. And I was like, no, well, I'm, I'm going to stop seeing that person. And I, I'm happier. It was a tough decision. Um, I also know when I was young, I found out I hated to do anything that was related to asking money to people, like, you know, like uh, calling for invoice payment or uh, fundraising. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> I, I hate that. And I'm like, I would never do it again. And I, then I choose my job according to the things I really don't like and the things that make me happy, the ones that give me the energy. That's how I have uh, carved my, my path. But again, I am, I am very privileged to have been quite independent. And I, I understand it's not always possible to mm. stop doing the things you don't like. <laughs> so I don't want to. Yeah, 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 totally. But it's a great tool, by the way, this uh, yearly retrospective. I have a similar, what you're talking is very familiar uh, for me as well. And it helps to gain clarity to just iterate, trim down a bit the things that drain your energy because, well, we have a limited day, <laughs> limited time. So let's make it count, you know, like uh, how we live life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And about also one important part you mentioned, like, but the reason also why you wanted to go in the as well, like you were having a daughter. I think it's a good reminder as well. So for the listeners, I'm sad to hear that it's a choice we have to make sometimes. I ask myself often this question is when I take some time off, what will happen? What are the opportunities I will miss? Can can I arrange my day? And the reality is like the more, at least for a woman, you grow up in a leadership or position of power where you can craft and decide that a bit more with independence, then you, you can maybe find a workaround. But the reality is that you have to adapt and bend to the rules that exist in the system. And it's not supported uh, as much in all the environments in the gaming industry, if you've seen about it or if you know as well. Yeah, I, I, tot- I totally agree with you. Uh, and this is why it's... Uh, I would encourage all the women who have carved their way into a position of power where they have the confidence and, and the comfort to uh, arrange their lives for themselves to always make a rule to give the same freedom they have to the people in their team. Hmm. So again, because we've done that, it's, again, it's a very simple thing because we're only 10 now, 12, but every advantage I had, everybody had. So if you had to go for your dog, for your house, for your daughter, for whatever, I don't mind. You go, you do it. All I care is that at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, you are happy, your job is done and everybody's happy with what you've delivered. So it is possible to actually let your teams go free uh, and, yes. and and let them arrange their daily lives. And yet they have, but I think people have seen it more with the virus uh, situation. Yeah. It's actually sometimes very hard, but also possible to let people manage their, uh, their everyday and still be happy and find the right balance. But anyway, I would encourage all the women of, in the situation of power to give all the freedom they have cut from themselves to the teams that they work with and see change in the organization i think that's the way to do it yeah and you mentioned one really of my motivation as uh, i get in a position also more of power and leadership to really design the environment more inclusively that we all have a life and we don't have to be mothers as well to you know have a certain obligation of personal life but just to be more mindful that it's not because you will be sitting here you know at the desk more that you will especially for creative work that you will do better the opposite actually and, and i'm also grateful that i mean there were all those all this traveling this constant traveling you have to be in that meeting you have to be there you have to 
well, I am grateful that the virus actually accelerated things. And uh, now I can say, no, I'm going to do the meeting from here and we're going to do it in conference and it's going to be mm -hmm. fine. I'm a bit worried that it's going to stop. I already see it stopping. I mean, real life events are taking place again in France now. In, mm -hmm. in yeah. West has been announced uh, in, in also in real life, I mean, in presence. So I, I hope that we're going to still to manage to be able to say, no, I'm going to do this from a distance and still be listened to. That would help everybody's time and also the planet. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned as well part of your priorities of life. I was curious how, so these personal values of yours, like the things you believe and advocate in, how do we reflect in also the studio culture? Do you have also, have you verbalized as well explicitly what's important in your studio? So I was curious about the values in your studio. So we are not, we are not big verbalizing values and having uh, everything in, in written. It's more of a, a natural process of uh, what we feel is right and it's happening. But yes, we have done it a lot for game bakers in many ways, as I was just giving you the example, the freedom that we have, we want the team to have it. They can work from anywhere in the world. Like our, our art director two years ago said, I'm going to go on a world trip uh, to Australia, New Zealand, and um, I think it stopped somewhere else on the way back. Quebec, Canada? Yeah. And for nine months or something like that, six months. And then we were like, yes, no problem. And he went and he took his computer and he was working with us still. And of course, sometimes it was hard when he was in Australia because we didn't have so much time together. But then he was extremely happy and he, and he worked well and he came back and he's done what he wanted to do. So, uh, yes, that's a great example of the freedom we give to everyone um, at the studio. And also we are American myself. I think we are both of us. We really... We have a very acute consciousness of how time is limited and how we are not there to make anyone, anything miserable. We just want people to feel uplifted and uh, happy. And uh, every, for myself, at least every interaction I have, I, I wish people are going to come out of it uplifted mm -hmm. and happier or more confident. I am not there. I, I, I really dislike draining the energy out of people or or even i mean criticizing what they are doing i would always try to focus on the thing the great and not the rest and i and i and i know i mean i've, I've been to business schools i've been to management and leadership schools and i've heard so much about mm -hmm. constructive feedback la, 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 la. but in the end i think it doesn't work when someone tells you He's done that great, 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 but that, 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 that. You just remember the, the bad stuff. <laughs> so I just cut it out. I cut it out. I just focus on the good stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I don't really see any big difference because anyway, the people know what they don't do well. They see it in everyday life. They, they, they can see that, oh, this wasn't done well and someone is, or something is going to show it to them and they, they're going to fix it by themselves. And if they don't, they will probably not stay at Game Breakers. So... <laughs> <laughs> Again, we are very, uh, very happy, but uh, to have people who have the same mentality around us and feel like that. Yeah, and uh, as a result, people are here for the long term. You know, it's a journey together. It's not like that transactional, like oh, I'm here for this project. There's a very strong support in their personal life, like the example you gave about like this freedom, like 
can I still work and do the things that are really important for me personally? And the second is, why am I here in this place? And uh, I think I will take away from this is like the feel good, like uh, this time we have on the planet. And I consciously want you this time to be good and with these people. And that's, you know, quite a strong also uh, value or philosophy in a way of being in a group. It is. And I would still add that we also shift the games and they're good games. Yes. And they all yes. have something very meaningful about them. Haven is a game about love. Uh, Fury is a game about freedom and love. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think they are proud of the games that they make, which is also something very important, I think, to be proud of whatever you are doing. And if you are not proud of what you're doing, you should probably not do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and more also personally for me, I was curious if there's any background of what really was driving you to foster for that culture, you know, like feel good, like and over maybe the corporate things you have seen, if there was a particular event that was a turning point for you, so like this is a company and culture I want to build as a response or, you know, as a conclusion of something that has happened. Well, it's, it's a bit crazy, but I think my biggest problem was the French culture. The French culture is extremely mm -hmm. critical. It is a culture that is designed for excellence and is critical by nature. The French think that they're giving you a service when they're criticizing you, which is, which is in some ways, I mean, there's lots of great things that, because they have great critical thinking and there's lots of great traits that come out of that mentality. But the side effect is you are constantly put down. Yes, everybody's criticizing you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God. And then I was lucky to work very early abroad in China. Now I'm in Sweden. And my partner in life is British uh, and I work with so many different nationalities. And I was like, oh, why am I so happy when I work with Canadian people? Why am I uh, so happy but a bit suspicious when I work with American people? <laughs> it's like there was very other ways to be in the social space and in the workspace. And I, this is where I realized I didn't have to be anymore uh, the way I've been educated to be in France and I could slightly change the way I am and the way I talk mm -hmm. to people, I interact with them, uh, to uh, generate a different kind of, of emotion and different kind of feelings. And that, for me, that was really meeting and working with different cultures. That was a big eye-opener. Um, and in particular, some people in my teams, I remember, were always pulling me up, always giving me energy, always. And I, every time I'd see them, I was like, yes, I'm going to check the world on. And then... Yeah, they were not French. <laughs> people like that too. I'm not trying to be mean, but I think some French people can see it if they, especially if they have lived with different cultures. And I think uh, for me that was an eye opening. And I think traveling and seeing the world is probably one of the greatest things you can do to open your mind and understand better the differences of mentalities and people and culture. Yeah, I totally agree. And I wanted to double down on that because as a French myself, I, yes, I see the similar things. And I worked also in big companies, French companies, uh, not Ubisoft, but yeah, I was I was working at Gameloft and also big French companies uh, out of game. And, you know, this culture of excellence, also quite hierarchical and very critical is It's becoming your norm when you only know that. And for me, it was an eye-opener when I started to work abroad in international teams. Like, oh, I actually identify myself much more to this. And I don't have to wear this this hat you know, or this mask anymore because it doesn't work for me. 
And when you choose, you know, different aspects of nationalities or culture that you find that really work for you, and it's a blend in the end more than, oh, I'm just a French, you know, with all the legacy of French culture, the good and the bad things, and you design sort of your culture. Yeah. Absolutely. Very funny anecdote and interesting, but yeah, I understand exactly what you mean. <laughs> All right, and a bit further as well as as we talked also about supporting more women in games and marginalized uh, communities, mm -hmm. I wanted to hear as well your own experience. So you've worked also for big studios, and I have I don't know so much about the culture of these studios, but if you were willing to share, what was your experience as well as a woman like producer designer, especially in big traditional industry that are very male dominated challenges you met, how you overcame them? Yes, uh, I wish I had a good story to say. But, uh, I mean, I was in entering the game industry in uh, 1997. Um, and uh, it's hard to really understand, but things were different at the time. And uh, also, I was coming from a privileged background with no... I was not educated to feminism. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't mind. I didn't think like that. I thought everybody's equal. I don't care, and I uphold everyone to my standards, and I refuse to see that it's uh, not the, the case. Uh, you know, I, I was like that when I started the industry. So I just stormed through, and I didn't give a flying fig for anything else. I was just moving on and working, and I didn't even realize that I was. Uh, possibly the victim of uh, sexism or all of that. I just like, I don't mind. I blend, I blend in that culture of white men. I don't mind. Mm -hmm. That was my way to do it. And it's only later that I started to, you know, possibly have a bit of time to sit down and look around me and then to have my daughter who was also, you know, it's a, It's a silly thing to say, but she helped me a, a lot to see the sexism in the world because I could actually see her experience it. And I saw it on her while well, I didn't see it on me because I wasn't. So that was my education. And then I tried to catch up and then uh, I started Women in Games and all those things. And now I am much more conscious mm. about most of it and not all of it, of course, but trying to do my best. And so... Um, I don't have a story of how I overcame. I overcame by blending in, which I think is the worst uh, advice to give. Don't blend in. Just do stay who you are <laughs> and don't give up on the things that are important for you. And don't let anyone put you down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, uh, yes. So I, I, I felt like I was, I, I felt good in those teams. I didn't mind it. It wasn't hard for me. So I'm not a, a good example. And this one, when I, when I, When I decided to start Women in Games, I, I was like four years ago, and I was like, it's not possible. They don't need it anymore. It's, this is over, right? It's, it's not needed. And then I talked. I decided I'm going to talk to a lot of people. I remember it was for the launch of Fury in 2016. So I went all around the world, all the big shows, E3, PAX, and da, 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 da. And I always talked to all the women I met, and I said, how is it going for you? And then after that, I was like, It's really bad. <laughs> and you know what? It's worse than I thought. And it's possibly worse than it was when I started in the industry. And it's terrible for the young ones in particular. And I thought it would be the other way around. I thought we, only the old guys were the nasty ones. And the young generation was better educated and you know more open and supportive. But then, no. I heard terrible stories from video game schools 
worse than I've seen in my uh, in the companies and studios, right? Mm. So this is why I decided to start human engagement, mm. and uh, because I realized it is not getting better. And also, when you think that in the in the 1990s and 80s, we had many more women working in the tech in general in France. I can show you the, send you the stats afterwards, but and it's decreasing. It's decreasing. There are less and less women working in the tech industry. And it's crazy because the tech industry is bigger. So, you know, it's everywhere now. Everything is tech. So when you look at that, that trend is super worrying. Yeah, this is sad. And uh, we definitely have well, responsibility as, you know, industry. And we feel particularly um, concerned, you know, above of us, I assume, to uh, I love games and I want to see just more people making games and uh, a good representation of who play games and the ones making them and that's not the case today yeah absolutely yeah. and uh, thanks for sharing your experience because also I wanted to reflect on that because I started a bit later my career in games but I have similar as well how I entered the industry that I I just blended in as well and I couldn't see the problems so. So I relate a lot to what you're sharing, but the thing is, when you look at the whole and uh, also as we grow in opposition, because I ask myself, why don't, don't I have the same story from others? And I was uh, quite involved in Women in Games Finland, heard also quite horrible stories, and this, is, this came as a shock for me because I, I realized I didn't know what I didn't know. There are several strategies of coping with it, but one you mentioned like it's like you blend in and you act as a man, you know, and you don't even realize. I have been in this position myself where I may have probably, in my leadership style, acted as a man and has not always been sensitive to other women who wanted to onboard until it really happened. They told me and I was really shocked and very, uh, very devastated because that's important for me. And I didn't realize that I was... I learn, you know, from guys. So I mimic until I, I question and I had to adapt to, okay, I need to change the behavior and understand that it's not the same expectation. So that's um, the first thing. And the second is that when we are in a position of power, we actually are have a, a certain shield to this because there's a dynamic of power that is happening. And I would talk tomorrow to other women who are not in a position of power, very different experience. And it could be the same guy that we know and has a very different attitude towards a person like me in this position because I have some power to, I don't know, fire, for example, or report. And for the other woman, not the same situation. And that was very revealing as well to me. So it's a yeah, very quite big, complex topic. And all we know, we can look at the statistics and know that there's much more to know and see. And I hope as well for the audience to have also more awareness about it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I encourage everyone to, to really question their uh, their bias. Because, uh, uh, I, I mean, I know a lot of great people who genuinely think that they are just, that they don't discriminate. They think that. They, they're like, oh, I've been educated like that. I don't discriminate. I have sisters. Uh, but they, you still do. You We all discriminate. We all do it. Maybe you don't discriminate for women, maybe you do it with people of color, or maybe you do it with people who have different body shape than yours. Or, but so just look at it, just take time and reflect on your on your own discriminations. And it's okay, we all do it, even the best of us. We just need to keep an eye open for them and, and just say no, 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 and, and reduce the occasions where the discrimination can actually have an impact on our decision. 
to the best we can in ourselves and in our organizations, right? So don't don't just because it's impossible to see what, as you said very justly, Sophie, what you don't know and what you're not aware of. But just try to open up and look at yourself from outside and try to find those moments where you're actually acting in a way that is not completely just. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm sure we would talk so much more, probably offline, you know, about these topics when we can after a vaccination and everything. But yeah, so much more to do here. And yeah. what we're doing already helps a lot and will help even more in the future. So thanks a lot for sharing all these thoughts and your personal experience. To wrap up the talk today as well, I always have the same questions for all my guests towards a bright future. So I have three questions I'd like to ask you. And my first one is, what are the next big steps for WINGS and how can we help? So at WINGS, we're in a situation that's crazy, that we have money, but we don't have the games. Oh. (laughs) We have money to fund games. We just don't have the games. So tell everyone you know that if they're making a game and they have a rather diverse team, they can talk to us. I think the... What we are facing here is the fact that uh, first, there's not many, still not many women working in games, but also possibly the women who are working in games, they don't know about us or they're, you know, they're not on the Discord that we all are. They're not at the industry show we all are. So we need to reach wider and bigger and let them know that there are ways to fund their games. That's the first thing. Then the next thing for us might be, we're thinking about starting also a mobile fund for mobile games, but that's very early. So. We're working on it right now. That sounds very exciting. And I'll make sure to relay for sure all the information about Wings on this podcast and uh, through Rise and Play because I think it's a great opportunity and it's just about, you know, matching with the audience because they are there, I'm pretty sure, somewhere, the studios, and to know more about what uh, you're doing with the fund. And my second question is, who inspired you in your journey? whether it was in gaming or personally, to do all the things you have been doing so far? Yeah, I mean, um, I didn't have, I wasn't big on role models and all the role models I had were men. So I don't want to talk about them. (laughs) No, but I mean, I think it's the, sometimes you also have, this is, a lot of you have it, I'm sure this internal will to, to grow, like you feel like if you stop learning, you're kind of dying already a little bit. <laughs> and that's something to nurture, I think, because it helps you to always challenge yourself, learn new things, talk to new people, and then do do the things you have in your mind. Just like you did, Sophie, mm-hmm. you said at the beginning when we were talking about <laughs> Yeah. I've done it. I've done this, uh, this show and all the masterclasses you are putting together. You went from thinking about it to doing it. And that's a world of difference. I hope more of us could actually do that little jump. It's not so hard, actually, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a good advice by itself. It's like we, I think we are blocked a lot by our mental questions. And I think that's one as well for the audience. Like what can go wrong? What would others think of me? Uh, maybe I cannot do this. Maybe I don't want it. And um, one thing I can say is sometimes it's freeing to not have to overthink and just do it, you know, and a lot of things unlock and great things. So it's a practice. <laughs> Absolutely. And last question, if you had one thing that you wish you could change right now in the industry, what would it be? Yeah, I think I would just, you know, all those barriers to entry 
in the industry with the cost of education. Like in France, to do a video game school is crazy expensive. You have to take a loan now. It's just insane. It's only one public training or two. It's oh, crazy. Wow. So all those barriers, be they uh, financial barriers or uh, sexism, uh, uh, the attitude towards people of color and, and all of that. If, if all those barriers could just get suspended and stop and just level them all and see who <laughs> all those fantastic people who are going to join us and make games and create chaos and probably make us move forward, all of us in big steps. I mean, every time we have opened the barriers to entry to video games, we have seen fantastic results. The first there was Steam. Then there was the app stores, and then there's all the tools like Unity and Real and all. And every time we open, we see new creators, new ideas, new fantastic games. I mean, Minecraft, all of those. They're just coming when we lower the barriers to entry. So let's do it again. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. All right, then this is it for today, Audrey. It was great to have you, and I'm looking forward to next time we can meet as well, this time offline and have a coffee, you know, somewhere in Europe. That would be great. Thank you so much, Sophie. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast. Spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership. Until the next time, 